You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 128. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please stop by the information table after the service. We'd like to give you one as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Psalm 128. A Song of Ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. Good morning, Park Church. How's everybody doing? There's like the front right section is like super. There were like a thousand kids, and now they're like all gone. And so there's like this big empty swath right there. Um, (laughs) So anyway, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Luke. I'm the student minister here at Park Church. And if you are just joining us, we are continuing our summer series on the book of Psalms. And this summer specifically, we have been studying the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. And these Psalms, as we've been saying for the last several weeks for the entire summer, we've been saying that these Psalms are a playlist. They are a playlist for the people of God who are on pilgrimage, who are on a journey to Jerusalem to connect with God, to commune with God. And so today, we've arrived at Psalm 128, Psalm 128. And even though it might not look, at, look like it on first blush, I'm going to argue that this psalm is a treatise on the problem of fear, on the problem of fear. I believe that this psalm asks us the question, who or what do you fear? Who or what do you fear? And of course, for those of us that are professing Christians, for those of us that believe in Jesus, we like to say, oh, I fear God. I fear God. But this passage is asking us, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Do you really fear God? Do you know exactly kind of what you're talking about when you say that you fear God? And so through the psalm, we're going to learn three things about fear. Three things about fear. Go ahead and show them on the screen. The first thing is we're going to learn the definition of fear. The definition of fear. The second thing, the problem of fear. The problem of fear. And number three, the solution. The solution to the problem of fear. So number one, the definition of fear. Number two, the problem of fear. Of fear, and number three, the solution to the problem of fear. But the main point that I hope that we see this morning as we study God's word is that the solution to the problem of fear is found in the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray so much that your Holy Spirit would come into this room over the next few minutes. Lord, that you would inhabit this place, you would inhabit this time, that this just won't be another routine Sunday, like, oh, just get to church on Sunday morning, did my routine, and now I can, you know, have fun the rest of the weekend. But God, we pray so much that just these next 20, 25 minutes would be special. We pray, God, that that maybe, just maybe, your presence would show up, that you would open up our eyes and open up our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us, and that something different, something powerful would happen today, that you would show us your face. Lord, we truly believe, we believe that we can get a glimpse, just a little glimpse of your face, we're forever going to be changed. Nothing will be the same. If we get a glimpse of your glory, a glimpse of your face, and so, God, we pray for that this morning, that you would show us yourself, you would show us your face, and forever be changed. So God, we pray for that. Please show up. May it not be about us or me or eloquence or anything fancy, but Lord, we pray that would be you, Jesus, that shows up. Holy Spirit, we invite you now in this time. And God, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit and that the words that come out of my mouth would not be mine, but rather yours instead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next slide, first point. The definition of fear. The definition of fear. All right, so check this out. If you were here a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on Psalm 121, on Psalm 121. And if you'll remember, the first thing I did in that message on Psalm 121 was to take you back to ninth grade English class. We went back to ninth grade English class. And why did we do that? We did it because ninth grade English was when we, well, it's when I first started paying attention. And that's when I first learned how to study poetry. It's when I first learned how to study poetry. Because you can't just like read a poem on first blush and be like, read it once and be like, ta-da, I know exactly what the poet was trying to say. No, you can't do that, right? You have to read it. You have to pour over it. And one of the things that I learned in ninth grade English was to look at the poetic structure of a poem, the poetic structure of a song. And if you'll recall, most songs written in the ancient Near East were in a form called a chiasm, a chiasm, which is very, very different from the songs that we listen to today. The songs that we listen to today almost always, almost always have the poetic structure that's on the screen right now. This is the contemporary poetic structure. You have a verse and you sing the chorus. You have another verse and then it's the chorus again. Third verse, also known as the bridge, and then the chorus again. You repeat the chorus after every single verse, okay? And if you'll recall, from a few weeks ago, I illustrated this contemporary poetic structure by examining what I argued to be the greatest contemporary song of all time, Shake It Off, Shake it off by Taylor Swift. <laughs> so we looked at that last week, but, or sorry, uh, a couple weeks ago, all right? But following that message, I had a few conversations with people, and they said to me, Luke Chow, Shake It Off is not the greatest contemporary song of all time. And so what I did was I had, to, I had to think about it. I had to think long and hard. And I had to like search my soul and deep inside myself. And I came to the realization, they were right. They were right. Shake It Off is not the greatest contemporary song of all time. And so as I thought and, and, and just searched my soul, 
I figured out, I, re- I realized what the actual greatest contemporary song of all time is. It is Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. That is the greatest contemporary song of all time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it on the screen, and you'll notice that it has the exact same poetic structure as Shake It Off and most other songs we sing today. I'm not going to get into it like we did uh, last time where I went line by line, but basically you see the same thing, right? Verse 1 chorus, verse 2 chorus, verse 3 chorus. The chorus follows every single verse, and the chorus is the thesis statement. It is the main main point of the song. And so this song, Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus, what she argues is, her thesis statement is, that the solution to her fear is to party in the USA. That is the solution to the problem of fear for Miley Cyrus. So ta-da! Contemporary modern poetry. Hooray! So anyway, through the song, we can see the form, right? We can see the poetic form of of, uh, contemporary music. But I would argue that this song also reveals to us societies, our society, our culture's solution to the problem of fear. And that is to ignore it, to run from it, to party it off, to dance it off, to shake it off, right? That is the solution our society says to the problem of fear. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a second. But for now, let's go back to Psalm 128. Again, as I said earlier, ancient Near East poetry has a very, very different poetic structure called achaism. Achaism. So we can put it on the screen. In achaism, the chorus or the thesis statement of the song is in the very, very middle of the song. Does that make sense? So you have surrounding symmetrical verses surrounding the chorus, which is the thesis statement the course of the song, okay? And Psalm, number, uh, Psalm 128 is a little bit unusual because actually verse 1 serves sort of as kind of like a title verse or an intro to the entire song, okay? And this intro, and you can put it on the screen here, and this intro, which is repeated in verse 4, is also the chorus or the thesis statement of the song. It's underlined uh, on the screen behind me. Uh, And that thesis statement is, the thesis statement of Psalm 128 is, the person who fears the Lord will be blessed. The person who fears God will be blessed. So that's the main point. That's the thesis statement of the song, right? Hooray, cool. But we're kind of like, all right, that's nice. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear something? The Hebrew word for fear is yare, yare. And literally it means, and this is a little bit weird, literally it means to be afraid of something, to stand in awe of something, to revere, to honor, and to dread. And you're kind of like, what? What's going on here? That, that, that seems a little bit weird because how could it be all of those things at once? To stand in awe, be afraid of, revere, honor, and dread. It seems like reverence and dread, revering something and dreading something are mutually exclusive. It seems like how can you do both of those things at the same time? doesn't make sense. Here's what it means. The Bible is teaching us that the things that we fear, the things that we fear are the things that own your thought life. Let me repeat that. The Bible's teaching us that the things that we fear are the things that own your thought life. 
They're the things that live rent-free in your head, and they have the power to totally control our lives. Throughout the scriptures, throughout this entire book, we're told over and over and over and over again to not fear anything. Don't fear anything except God. God is the only one you should fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. Only fear God. And this is because he is the only good master. God is the only good master. Everything else that we fear, everything else that we let control our thinking, control our mind space, everything else will crush us. But that's our problem, right? We tend to fear everything, everything except God. And the deal is this, like all of us fear something. And again, I'm not talking about spiders or heights or junior high students. I'm not talking about that, right? I'm talking about the stuff that we, I don't know, the stuff that that just kind of owns our thought life, and we shape our lives, we change our lives to prevent those things from happening in real life. So things like failure, failure, sometimes that's our fear. Sometimes it's ridicule. I don't want to be ridiculed. Rejection, like we do everything in life, so many things to not get rejected. We fear loss. We fear violence. We fear death. All those things, right? Stuff like that. And so again, what happens is we tend to do anything. We tend to do whatever it takes to avoid those fears, whatever it is that we fear. And we turn to our drugs of choice, our drugs of choice. Things like work or sports or video games, outdoor activities, shopping, food, books, movies, love, romance, sex, alcohol, drugs, stuff like that, right? And we turn to those things to comfort ourselves and to medicate away our fears. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all of those things on that list are bad. In fact, the vast majority of those things on that list, the things that we turn to, our drugs of choice, most of those things are actually good. But the problem is that they aren't strong enough to, to take away our actual deepest fears. When we place our hope in those things, in that list of good things, when we ask things like alcohol, when we, think, when we think alcohol is going to solve our deepest fears and insecurities, we discover that it's not going to work. None of those things work. None of those things take away our deepest, darkest fears and insecurities. At best, they only defer our problems to a later time, don't they? So the question this psalm is asking us is, what is it that you fear? What is it that you fear? What is living rent-free in your head and owning your thought life and your decision-making? What is that thing? And also, what is the thing? What are the things that you turn to 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 mitigate or medicate that fear? What are those things? The Bible tells us that when we fear anything above God, we will get crushed. But for those who fear the Lord... No matter what happens, no matter what happens in life, those people will be more than conquerors because the king of the universe holds them in the palm of his hand. And that's our first point, the definition of fear. Next slide, second point, the problem of fear, the problem of fear. Let's read verses one through four again, one through four. 
Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Okay, what's going on here? What's happening here? This psalm, Psalm 128, is a song that is a summary of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And Deuteronomy 28 is, uh, verses 1 through 14, it's a list of blessings uh, for Uh, the blessings that God has promised his people Israel for obeying the Mosaic covenant. This is the list of blessings that you get when you obey the covenant, when you obey God. So here's the story, right? Long ago, when Israel was on the verge of taking the promised land, God reminded Israel through the book of Deuteronomy and specifically through chapter 28, God reminded Israel of the covenant that they made with him. And to quickly summarize uh, the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28, to, to summarize, God promised Israel that if they obey him, they will be blessed wherever they go. They will have children. They'll have abundant crops, herds, flocks, and food. They will have safe travels. Their their coming and their going will be safe. They will have victory in battle over their enemies and that they will be honored and feared by the surrounding nations. So here's the thing, right? These covenant promises were part of the old covenant and, and many of them were pretty specific to Israel, right? I'm not expecting to have great crops this year because I'm not a farmer, right? But the principle of the covenant still applies. When we say yes to God, good things happen. The principle still applies. When we say yes to God, good things happen. But here's the thing. These blessings were just the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28. The next 54 verses lay out the consequences for not obeying God, not being faithful to the covenant. And for the sake of time, uh, we're not going to delve too deeply into the next 54 verses. But here is the question that this chapter, that Deuteronomy 28, is asking us. Here's the question. How sure am I that I'm a person that says yes to God? How sure am I that I'm a person that says yes to God? There are many, many people, there are many people who reject God outright. They'll just reject him. They will say like, hey, no thanks, deuces, I'm out, I'm going my own way. There are many, many people that do that in this world. But then you've got people like me. You've got people like me. And my problem is I don't say no to God, but I don't really say yes either. What I tend to say to God is I tend to say yes if, yes if. Let me illustrate it like this. There was one day, uh, a few years ago, I was hanging out with my best friend, Tim. So me and my best friend, Tim, were hanging out, and we decided to go have sushi for dinner. Does anyone here like sushi? Does anyone like a couple people, a couple woos? Yeah, sushi, fantastic, super great, a little too expensive in Denver, but that's okay. Super delicious, right? So me and my best friend, Tim, we go out, we have sushi, we order like 10 zillion plates, like a bunch of different like types of sushi, we share it, super delicious, right? As you know, uh, for those of you that have sushi, that like sushi, what comes with the sushi is this little, like, green glop of stuff 
called wasabi. And for those of you that do not know what wasabi is, just understand this. It's very green and very spicy. That is what wasabi is. And so, after we finished eating, like, uh, you know, all of our sushi platters, there was a ton of leftover wasabi. And so, like a good friend, I asked my best friend, Tim. I dared my best friend, Tim. Hey, Tim. Uh, I dare you to take a full spoonful of wasabi and eat it. I dare you to do that. And of course, Tim, you know, being the chicken that he is, he was just like, no, I don't want to, wah, I'm scared, I want to eat wasabi, blah, 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 blah. And so I kept on like pushing him, kept on like peer pressuring him, you should eat it, you should eat it. And then, but you know, he was like resisting the whole time, hesitating. But then I said to him, and this is what pushed him over the edge, then I said to him, hey, Tim, if you eat it, then I'll eat it. If you eat it, then I'll eat it. So he was like, all right, that's fair. That's fair. So, so what he did was he took a big spoonful, a glop of wasabi. It was like, like this much wasabi, right? And he just went chomp. He just ate the whole glob of wasabi. And he like chewed it for a couple seconds. His eyes got a little bit wider. And then he swallowed it, right? So I'm like, all right, this is going to get good. And so what happened was a couple seconds went by, nothing, nothing, nothing. But then he started like shaking a little bit. And then his eyes started to water. And then his nose started to run. And he starts, you know, starts sweating. He starts sweating. And then, like, his eyes got wider and wider. And then he started, like, going, woo, a lot. He was like, woo, woo, woo. And then he started crying even more. You know, more snot was coming out of his nose. It was so disgusting. It was so great. And then, like, he was like, where's the water? I need water. I want. So he drinks the water. He, like, he drinks a ton of water. He's like, ah, it's making it worse. It's making it worse. And then he's just like, I need some milk. I need some milk. We're at a sushi restaurant, Tim. There is no milk. And so he's, like, dying. He's, like, running around going crazy. Woo! Like, for 20 minutes, he's going crazy, and I'm having the best time of my life. This is the best moment in my life, watching my best friend Tim suffer. It was great. I loved it. So anyway, after about 20 minutes of his glorious suffering, what he said was, you know, so the pain started to subside for him, and so then he said to me, all right, Luke, I did it. Now it's your turn. To which I replied, mm-mm, I ain't doing that, sucker. I'm not doing it. So I walked away not having wasabi, having the best time of my life, watching my best friend Tim suffer. So, horrible story, right? I'm a bad friend, but I love it. But here's the point, right? Do you see what I did there? Do you see what I did? I said to Tim, yes, if. Yes, if. Yes, I will do as you say, but only if it suits me. Only if I feel like it. And the truth is, we do the same thing with God. We say to God, if you give me happiness, if you give me success, if you give me good health, if you give me a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or good grades or a good job, a nice career, a sweet house, a sweet ride, if you give me those things, then I'll obey you. Then I'll obey you. It's called conditional obedience, right? That's conditional obedience. And the, the thing is that we t when we tend, we tend to offer conditional obedience to God, especially with the parts of the Bible that we don't like or understand. But the truth is, as you guys both, as we all know, right, that is not true obedience. Conditional obedience is not obedience. True obedience is obeying even if, or actually rather, 
True obedience is obeying, especially if we don't like it, we don't agree with it, or we don't understand it. That's what true obedience is. Tim Keller puts it like this. When we only offer God conditional obedience, God isn't really our king. He's only our advisor. And unfortunately, the problem is all of us do this. All of us do this. Romans 3 says that no one is righteous, not even one, meaning that all of us disobey God at one point or another. We all disobey him, and in our own strength, none of us can truly obey, none of us can truly fear God. Even if we want to fear God, even when we're in our best possible moments, even when we're like, Lord, I want to fear you, I want to obey you, I want to follow you, the truth is that in our own strength, we can't do it. We just can't do it. And so, sometimes it feels like when life hits us, when stuff comes our way that's just not so pleasant, we end up feeling like we're getting the curses instead of the blessings. I got a question for you guys. Do any of you have a bucket list? Does anyone have a bucket list? You guys know what a bucket list is? A bucket list is a list of the things that you want to do before you kick the bucket, right? Before you kick the bucket, before you die, this is the list of things that you want to do. And recently, uh, I found my old bucket list. I found my bucket list from when I was in high school. Uh, and please, uh, it's on the screen. Please don't judge me. Uh, and it's a little embarrassing because you can see my maturity level. Since my number one goal in life was to dunk a basketball. That was number one for me. Um, so yeah, anyway, so you can see just kind of where I was at when I was in high school. But okay, here's the thing, right? My number three goal, my number three goal, and maybe really my only serious goal, was to be a father. My number three goal was to be a father. Since I was a kid, that was my dream. My dream was to be a dad. But when I look at my reality right now, when I look at my life, unfortunately, I never got my wish. I never got my wish. I've dedicated my life to serving the Lord, to serving God, but it feels like the blessings of God written out in this psalm, in Psalm 128, they still elude me. The promise of a wife, the promise of kids, it feels like they're so far away. I don't have a wife. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have children. I don't have a family. And, and, and it's like, Lord, you, you promised this. This was the blessing in Psalm 128. You promised these things, and I don't have them. And, and so, like, what do you do with that? What do I do with that, Lord? And perhaps maybe some of you feel the same as me. Maybe some of you, like me, are doing everything possible to draw near to God. You're doing everything that you can, but he's, he's nowhere to be found. Maybe it feels like you're, you're getting the curses instead of God's blessings. And, and so the question for us is, like, what, what hope do we have? My, my dreams are unfulfilled. My goals, my, my, my bucket list, the things that I want in life, they are not, they're just not, I'm just not getting them. What hope do we have? That brings us to our last point, the solution to fear. The solution to fear. Let's read verses five and six again. Five and six. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. 
May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Okay, what's going on here? What's going on? This verse seems to refer to Israel and Jerusalem a bunch of times. Three times, in fact. And you're kind of like, why? Why all, this, all these Israel-Jerusalem references? Is it just nationalism? Is that all it is? Like, oh yeah, you know, Israel, uh, Israelite nationalism. Is that what this passage is about? No, it's not. If you'll recall, this psalm is a song of ascent. It's a song of ascent. And it was sung by those on a journey heading up to Jerusalem to connect with, to commune with God. And in the scriptures, Jerusalem isn't honored because the people or the place are super cool. In fact, actually, the vast majority of the Bible shows the people of God constantly rebelling against him. The reason it's honored, the reason Jerusalem is honored is because Jerusalem is where the temple stood. It's where the temple stood. And what is the temple? The temple was, in the Old Testament, the one and only bridge between God and us, God and humanity. We learn in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, God's powerful, glorious, healing presence left the earth when Adam and Eve sinned. But in the book of Exodus, we see God's presence returning and it would reside with his people Israel. It would lead them in the wilderness, and it would reside on the temple in a pillar of cloud. And by residing in the temple as a pillar of cloud, God was saying to us that despite our fears, despite our failures, he was promising that he would one day find a way to give us the covenant blessing and take away the curse. That was his promise to us. Centuries later, centuries after Psalm 128 was written, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus makes a visit to the temple. And what he does is, while he's there, is he pronounces judgment on the temple, judgment on the temple system, saying that it would soon be obsolete and replaced with something way better. Let me read to you Mark chapter 13, verses 26 and 27. It's on the screen. And they will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming in clouds, in clouds, with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that we don't have to journey to the temple anymore to commune with God. Instead, Jesus, the Son of Man, would be the new bridge to bring the cloud of God's presence, his glory, his healing power to us. And this is the gospel. Even though we fear and we fail more often and more more horribly than we could ever dare imagine, we're also more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. That's the gospel. And he promises us that if anyone ABCs, ABCs, admits, believes, and chooses, anyone A, admits their brokenness, their sin, their fears, their need for a Savior, B, believes that Jesus came to the earth, is the new bridge between us and him, He's the, he, he died for us and he rose from the dead, and C, chooses to follow after him. If anyone ABCs, admits, believes, and chooses, That person has access again to the glorious, powerful, healing presence and blessing of God. 
As Laurel was saying this morning, no longer is the cloud of God's presence something you need to find or it's outside of you. Now God's presence lives inside of you for those who believe. So let me conclude like this. Some of you might be thinking, okay, cool, okay, cool, that's really cool, Luke, that's nice. But what does the gospel have to do with fixing my singleness or fixing my sadness, my loneliness, my infertility, my depression, all those things? What does the gospel have to do with that? Here's the answer. The gospel is the solution because it reprioritizes our fears. The gospel reprioritizes our fears. So, you guys remember my bucket list? How my greatest desire was to be a dad, but how it's like super out of reach for me. I want to show you guys a quick picture. Uh, this is a picture of two of my former high school students, Brandon and Christine. Years and years ago, I counseled Brandon and Christine at summer camp. And they were both dorks, they were both turds, but through the years, through many, many years, uh, at camp, uh, during the school year, I kept you know, in touch with them, I kept talking with them, kept loving them, kept pouring into them, and just amazingly, both of them fell in love with Jesus. They fell in love with Jesus. Brandon especially is kind of this crazy case, because he was like, there was no way. The only reason he went to camp was to pick up girls. That's the only reason he went to summer camp. But somehow, Brandon <laughs> fell in love with Jesus. Um, and, and also, they ended up you know, falling in love with each other, and they got married. Super cool. Two weeks ago, I went back to Pennsylvania. This was in Pennsylvania. I went back to Pennsylvania, back to that same summer camp. But not as Brandon and Christine's counselor. I went as their camp speaker. Next slide. Brandon and Christine were the camp directors. They were the directors of the camp. And they, and I got to watch that, they led me. They were my leaders. And I watched them lead me, their staff, their counselors, and a horde of little campers. I got to watch them do that. And under their leadership, I got to see my spiritual children's children's children. And one of them actually is, is the, the girl in the middle. That's my niece, Vera. And Vera, a couple weeks ago at camp, made a first-time decision to follow Jesus that week. It was incredible. It was incredible. And like my heart, I'm still kind of recovering like mentally. I'm still processing this whole thing of like being with them and, you know, it, like, this was my dream, and this is what I pray all the time, that my students would be my leaders someday, and it happened. And I got to walk that out a couple weeks ago. My heart is, like, totally full. I may not have gotten my wish for biological children, but God has granted me a spiritual heritage, a spiritual heritage that will last into eternity. And not just with these kids, not just with Brandon and Christine, but with so many others and the ones that I get to love and serve here at Park Church. What a, what a tremendous heritage and blessing that I have that just blows my mind. Here's the point. When our hope is in Jesus, our fears dissipate. Our fears dissipate. My fear of loneliness, 
my fear of rejection, my fear of ridicule, gone. Gone when Jesus sits on the throne of my heart. And again, I'm not, I'm not perfect in this. I still struggle with this every so often. But I, I hope that I've earned the right to tell you, to promise you, that you don't need a spouse. You don't need kids. You don't need a family. You don't need wealth. You don't need money. You don't need possessions. You don't need beauty. You don't need anything that this world has to offer to be blessed. All you really need is the person of Jesus Christ because his presence is more than enough to conquer your fears. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that I don't live this out all the time. (laughs) Lord, you know me and you know my heart, you know my struggles, how I feel like a hypocrite sometimes when I'm up here telling people, hey, you don't need (laughs) these things when I, I turn to them so often. God, I turn to my fears, and I dwell on them, and they take up, they, they sit on the throne of my heart where, Jesus, you belong. Lord, I'm sorry. I pray that you'd forgive me for that. I pray that you'd forgive us for that as a family, as a church. But, Lord, we pray so much that we would be a people that recognizes, that encourages, that edifies and spurs each other on, understanding, realizing that, that truly, truly, we only need you. That Jesus, you are more than enough. That your grace is sufficient for us because your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, we know these promises that you've made to us. We know the covenant promises that you've given to us in our heads. But Lord, we pray that it would infiltrate our hearts, that we would truly believe it with our hearts, with everything that we are, that your grace is enough, that you are all we need. And in fact, it's not just, oh, I'm surviving on God's grace, but instead we can live victoriously. We can live as conquerors because we know that you are the king, we're your servants, and we are so full. Even if we don't get exactly what we want, what we think is best for us, Lord, if, if we're in line with you, if you are the only thing that we fear, if you are sitting on the throne of our heart, then what an adventure, what a joy this life is because we get to be your kids, we get to be your servants, we get to follow after you in adventure. So God, we pray that that reality will become true in our hearts, true in our lives, continue to, to help us to see and not be corrupted by the influence of this world that tell us otherwise. Instead, help us to, to hold fast to your word, to your promises to this book, because this is life for us. So help us to believe it. Help me to believe it, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.